You're listening to Preserves, a Manitoba food history podcast, exploring the rich, flavorful history of Manitoba food and the people who make it, sell it, and eat it. From the packing table to the dinner table, from restaurant specials to grandma's secret recipes, we consider the cultural, social, and commercial aspects of Manitoba food and what it means to us. I'm your host, Kent Davies. This week we talk about salsa and how making the foods we love is important to maintaining our cultural identity. But first, let's introduce the project further by chatting with the Manitoba Food History Project's principal researcher and my co-host. You may remember her from her book, Snacks, a Canadian food history which documented the history of such notable snack food staples as Hawkins cheesies and Old Dutch chips. University of Winnipeg's business and food historian, Professor Janice Thiessen. So Janice, how did this project come about? Well, after finishing my snacks book, I was interested in learning more about the history of food, especially in my home province. So the Manitoba Food History Project is driven by two questions. How has food been produced, sold, and consumed in Manitoba, and how has that all changed over time? And we've been learning a lot of interesting things in the course of this project. I mean, I feel that food is kind of a touchstone that allows you to explore all aspects of history, whether that be cultural, social, even business history, which is, you know, your background. Everybody has a story, everybody has a recipe, so I'm really excited to bring these stories to light. So what's in the pantry for our very first episode? For our first episode, we have the story of Jose Barrera originally from El Salvador, and his life story is almost unimaginable for some of us, so we're grateful that he chose to share it with our listeners. Now, this story was produced by one of your students, Jackson Wayne Anderson, right? Yes, Jackson Anderson is completing a four-year honors degree in history at the University of Winnipeg. And as I understand, he actually works with Jose at a church. Yes, they got to know each other quite well, and Jose was willing to share his many salsa recipes with Jackson. Oh, and we got to try some, which was great. That we did. They were delicious. But I think we got the light version because usually salsa will make steam come out of my ears. Yes, and Jose talks about that in his story. All right, let's give it a listen. One year I thought that I would end up at the great hospital. When I was making them, they went through the gloves while I was chopping them. They have an arrow and a ghost pepper, and it went through the gloves. I couldn't, I had to keep my fingers and my hands open like that and air them out always for two weeks. It feels like they were going to come off. And I dipped it in milk and like people suggested, uh, ketchup, sugar, you name it. Nothing will take the, the pain away. This is Jose Barrera. Here he's describing his experiences in making salsa, a food that he has a very personal history with. I was exposed to a a daily thing since I remember life. Spicy? Definitely I had to have it. It's almost like you're addicted. You know what I'm saying? It's calling you. For Jose, the spiciness of his salsa is more than just a personal taste. It helps distinguish him as a Salvadoran from the various other communities he's met here in Canada. My name is Jackson Wayne Anderson, and today we explore how Jose's life story and his experiences in preserving and adapting traditional Salvadoran salsa illustrates a larger chapter in Manitoba's recent history.
This chapter began in 1970 when the Premier of Manitoba, Edward Schreier, spoke of two challenges that the province would face in the future. The first was to preserve a meaningful cultural identity for each of the diverse groups in our society, and the second one to bring into society as a whole the maximum cultural contributions from each of those groups. In the last 50 years, hundreds of migrant communities new to Manitoba continue to struggle with preserving their distinct cultural identities while still mixing in with the province's cultural mosaic. For many of these communities, traditional foods serve to both help and hinder their adaptation to Manitoba's multicultural landscape. Salvadoran salsa is just one example of a food not often considered very Manitoban that has nonetheless mixed into our local foodscape while still being culturally distinct. The capacity of foods like salsa to mix with other cultures outside of El Salvador does complicate the story a little. By sharing these communities' complex experiences with traditional foods and identities through smaller stories like Jose's, I hope to show how food has a multifaceted role in helping newcomers to Manitoba integrate into a new culture on their own terms. As we will see, food is more than just something to whet our appetite. It's a part of our cultures and of our stories that brought many of us to live here in Manitoba. And for Jose, his story starts in El Salvador. I was born in a, just a, a very remote village. It was, uh, it was just us in, in the bush, right? We were extremely poor. We have a small room for 11 of us. We hunt, we fish, and then if we had to go to the village to exchange uh, fish for sugar or rice, we just chopped a banana leaf and you wrap your around your waist. You go to the village like that and then uh, to exchange the fish for whatever your needs were, whether it's sugar, salt, or, or rice, or whatever. And we were so happy. We never knew what this to have. Uh, at age 12, I escaped my country, you know, escaped war. We went through war, right? The reason that I just kept going and going is because at age 12, you, back then during the war, you had to have a piece of ID and otherwise they kill you if you get caught, right? Anyway, so if you ask me how I escaped, I, I got lost and uh, because my country, El Salvador, and especially my province, it borders with... Um, another country named Guatemala, right? So I just kept going and going and going. So I went through farms and uh, I stayed there, you know, and uh, to do some work for them and keep going and went through Mexico. Mexico is a huge country and uh, when you don't know where you're going, you're just going right forward. And I went forward and uh, hit the border between Mexico and America. California, San Diego, California, and Tijuana. Those are the two borders, main entrance there. 
and I one one night I just sneak in to the other side, and that's how I came to America, Los Angeles downtown, Christmas Day. Nineteen eighty. For the next few weeks, Jose slept on the street to Los Angeles, finding help where he could. I got picked up by a church because I was so young, and they helped me. And uh, so I moved from Los Angeles to Chicago, and then Washington D.C., and then from Washington D.C. to New York City. And New York City, I work for a church, and. Back then, there was a priest from our church, from Winnipeg, and that's how I'm here. He says, by the way, do you want to come to Canada? Canada is beautiful. And just to be obedient, and I say, okay. Jose said yes, but he was skeptical about actually getting into Canada without documentation. He took me to a Canadian consul to apply for a Canadian paper. And because I was young and... uh, I didn't have any ID with it in my pocket. Like I said, I escaped with no papers or nothing. So when I went to the Canadian consul there, they told me, well, young man, we don't know who the hell you are and where the hell you come from. Just, and I just laugh about it because that's the way they said. The Canadian consul requested Jose go to the Red Cross to receive documentation on his status. So, and I said, well, that's impossible, right? So I guess I'm not going to Canada. It didn't matter. But I was so young, so they phoned me back for an interview. So they make a decision and they, they say, well, you're going to Canada. You choose a year from this day on up to, to make a decision when you like to go to Canada. And then I say, well, I will choose August the 26th, 1986. That's the day I entered Canada. i never been in a plane before, so I was feared. I, I was so scared and afraid. And uh, uh, when they sent me... Jose arrived in Canada just a year before a major surge of other Salvadorian refugees fleeing the Civil War made the same journey northward after the U.S. tightened its immigration policy. Because from this big city to a land that is so huge and... That's what I can see from the air, from the window at the plane. Prior to the Civil War in the 1980s, there was almost no sizable Salvadoran community in Canada compared to the many other ethnic groups already living here. Many of the Salvadorans that came during the war lacked the same cultural connections to Canada that they had in other Latin American countries or even in the United States. Despite many struggles, the Salvadoran Canadian community persevered and has become one of the largest Latin American communities in Canada today. For Jose, though, as with many other Salvadoran Canadians, his ties to El Salvador and the people he grew up with were not severed once he got here to Canada. Through the church, we we found my aunt that. She is a nun, she is still a nun. And through her, we find my family. And after years, we communicate. 
and I learned that they're still alive, that they didn't get killed, and they thought also they were so pleased that I was alive also. And in 2009, they all reunited back in their home in El Salvador. We have a family reunion. We all got together. And good thing because three months after that, my mother dies. But we went to visit a little house there where we grew up. I didn't recognize it because I went back after 27 years. Completely different. But it's funny, everybody recognized me, but I didn't recognize them. So, uh, and a lot of people got killed, you know, during the war, so. It's from his mother that Jose has his earliest memories of salsa, the food that he's used to keep connected to El Salvador for over three years. Every town and every recipe is different. But mine is, uh, I have my mother's recipe in my head, old ones. Back in my country, I saw my mother, she just did the basic. She would pick up the, the, the peppers and mash them with a rock, you know, because we didn't have no dishes, we didn't have no nothing, right? So you, you just get a, a rock that is shape is uh, almost like a bowl, right? And then with another rock, you just do your own grinding add up the uh, salt and other ingredients because we have uh, paprika trees there also and all the spices and you mix it up. You mix the tomatoes and, 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 uh, and a pepper, hot pepper because you ask me, that's all we have. The salt and you were lucky to have the tomato but you always had the pepper and you mix, mix it together and then you have. And then people find to through their own heads or their own ideas, that, oh, let's try this spice, you know, different leaves. Because in a tropical country, it's tropical. You have that all year round. So you do your own invention, you know. It's clear that for both Jose and many other Salvadorans displaced by the Civil War, making traditional Salvadoran foods helps to preserve the memories of their home country. Melida, a Salvadoran woman living in the United States once explained that giving up Salvadoran foods was so hard for her community because of how much it reminded them of home. As Sharon Stowers explains in her study on Salvadoran American eating habits, the distinct taste and flavors of El Salvador's rich and spicy cuisines helped display Salvadorans remember both their culture and their loved ones that they had lost during the war. Over the last three decades, Thousands of Salvadorian restaurants and grocery stores have opened worldwide to provide the international Salvadorian community a taste of their homeland. In Manitoba, this includes Café Mercadito Latino and La Fiesta Cafecito here in Winnipeg. While the Salvadorian Canadian community has found great success in staying connected to their homeland's culture through food, many other migrant communities new to Manitoba continue to struggle with even accessing their traditional foods. Researchers such as Amy Henderson and Joyce Slater have noted that many migrant communities from North Africa, the Middle East, and Southeast Asia living in Winnipeg's North End neighborhood have many challenges getting their traditional foods in the city's supposed food desert. 
Many of these communities have turned to alternative means of getting culturally significant foods, which Jose himself has had some experience in. I know this farmer in St. Norbert that he starts them early in, in the winter so that the peppers by September, they already mature to hold that spice. I get 50 pounds of habaneros peppers and ghost peppers. And boy, it's just the smell will knock you down when you are on the process of washing them before you put them in the blender. And when you are cooking them, make sure there is a nice day because you are going to go on the balcony. Just the steam will choke you to death. And see all that nothing goes out in the hallway and you come out for breathing. It is to take a breath because it's just, you, you, you cannot, Breathe in. <laughs> Regardless of their original culture, migrant communities in Manitoba continue to be very crafty in getting their foods just the way they want it. In many cases, though, these communities have been forced to adapt their unique cuisines to what is available here in Manitoba. However, the foods that these communities adapt to their new environment often have a history of mixing with other cultures across time and region. Jose shares his own understandings of how salsa has done this throughout its long, dynamic history. What I understand is back in the Incas and Mayans and Aztecs, those who were tribes, those are the first people who were there. This began from there, you know, and over the years, you know, people uh, adapt their own things and make it to taste uh, whatever taste. Not all the salsa are the same. Salsa is believed to have been invented by the indigenous peoples of Central America by 3000 BC. By the time that the Spanish missionary Alonso de Molina gave this food the name of salsa, simply meaning sauce in Spanish, salsa had already been adapted into thousands of different mixes as it had spread across Central and South America. In many ways, salsa's long history as a versatile food across so many regions makes it a part of a diverse Latin American culture rather than just a Salvadoran culture. As Jose's experiences show, salsa is still a very dynamic food regardless of where you make it. As you go to another country, like I say, I was in Guatemala and in Mexico, in America, you do your own Mix and see how it turns. Like I have done with pineapple and mangoes, right? With habanero peppers. I have all different mixes over here from all the people that I hear. I hear from uh, Trinidad and Tobago and Jamaica. You know, they have their own mixes too and different peppers. So I try everything. While inspired by history, Jose does use some modern conveniences when he makes salsa. I just use the blender and pre-cook them, you know, put the other ingredients and uh, leave it to cool it off until the next day. It's almost like winemaking, you know, you have to sterilize the bottles and you have to leave it to ferment it. You have to put this and this and that. You have to make sure that you are stirring over and over when the thing is boiling, right? 
same thing, but it all depends what kind of hot sauce you're making. If you're just making one just for today or for the next three days, just roast the pepper, you know, not too much, and then you make it just for today and tomorrow. But if you want to make something that it lasts for a few years, then it's a lot of work. Though Jose has constantly mixed his traditional ingredients and tools with other ones he's found outside of El Salvador, there is still one thing that keeps his salsa distinct from many other Canadians, the spice. You want pure stuff, you make sure that you just use just a tiny little bit of apple cider vinegar and the other ingredients so that they don't break the spices down, right? And that has something to do with how the peppers have been ripened on the plant. Even my landlord, she just loves it. It's the only comedian that I have come across. Nothing is hot for her. I have given away some other people, right? And yes, oh, they sweat and everything. They said that it's hot, but they cannot tolerate the next level. I'm not saying that Canadians don't like spicy. Some of them, they do like spicy. But it all depends what you call it, what is spicy to you, right? You just, when they say they like spicy, you do not give what you have made. Because there's all different levels. Do you know what I mean? You don't want to send somebody at the hospital. For Jose, it's clear that spiciness is very important for him in making salsa a part of his distinct Salvadoran heritage while living here in Manitoba. Jose shares his thoughts on other foods that help define a distinct culture for El Salvador, as well as how these foods vary and change in El Salvador itself. Because every country has their own specific dish. Because I live there, I know what's the call and what it is. Like, Guatemala has beef and black beans. We have what they call pupusa. And what it is, 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 is almost like to tortilla, puffy, with stuff inside, pork and beans, refried beans, or, or whatever you have, you can make any of it. We are very famous for that, but every country are famous for their specific dish. Like salsa, the pupusa comes from a distinct culture, but has changed dynamically as Salvadorans have mixed with other cultures from around the world. When I asked Jose where he's seen this mixing of foods and culture the most, his answer made me put the different foods we find here in Manitoba into a bigger perspective. Canada has, think about it, the whole world is here. We are from so many countries. In the summertime, you go to any fest in, in, in small towns. Wow, you come across with homemade stuff that you think, how do you make this? How do you put this together? And that is because you go back and to ask the, the, the lady behind the counter, oh, this is so-and-so from there, and this is so-and-so. And not only there, from other countries, but they have learned to put other people's ingredients too, and not necessarily one recipe, but a little bit here, a little bit there, from the, or different people from different countries. And wow, there you have it. Jose's perspective on how unique cultural foods are exchanged in a cultural mosaic raises an important question. How might this access to ingredients and cultures from around the world cause a food from one specific community to lose its distinctiveness? 
For many migrant communities in Manitoba and across Canada, the challenge with preserving their traditional foods in the cultural mosaic is not so much the lack of access to them, but being pressured to simplify their very distinct regional and cultural dishes under a broader cultural identity that more Canadians might recognize. We can see this both in the Salvadoran community and many other communities attached to a larger cultural group. The aforementioned Café Mercadito Latino and La Fiesta Cafecito in Winnipeg, for example, offer many distinct Salvadoran dishes, though they also explicitly advertise the wide variety of their selections for a broader Latin American community. This certainly highlights the willingness of the Salvadoran owners to connect to a larger community that has often helped many Salvadorans settle here in Manitoba, but it might also lead to other Canadians unfamiliar with the cultural diversity of Latin America to overgeneralize Salvadoran culture as being just like any other Latin American culture. The adaptability of traditional foods to a new cultural landscape is thus a lot more complicated when we factor in the risks of distinct migrant communities being forced to assimilate into a cultural or national identity that they themselves may not identify with. It's obvious that migrant communities new to Manitoba and Canada at large face many challenges in integrating into the multicultural landscape as equal but distinct cultural groups. What's even more obvious is the role that food plays in this complex process. Migrant communities here in Manitoba are finding new ways to address these challenges every day. In addition to growing their own foods and networking with suppliers across the country to get affordable foods with just the right taste and freshness, migrant communities have opened up to educate both themselves and other Canadians about their distinct cultural cuisines and the identities that they attach to them. Cooking and gardening programs put on by Food Matters Manitoba and the Immigration and Refugee Community Organization of Manitoba are allowing more and more newcomers to preserve their traditional foods in practical and affordable ways. I think I'm, I am very, very proud of being a Canadian, and, and, but I also very proud where I come from. While Jose's life story and his experiences adapting Salvadoran salsa are only one part of a much larger story, they do offer a window into the complex struggles and successes of migrant communities and finding their place in Manitoba's mosaic through food and other parts of their culture. The questions that Jose's experiences raise are questions that we as Manitobans will have to ask ourselves the more diverse we become as a province. And the more we listen to stories like Jose's, the more we'll learn of how to make Manitoba truly a place open to all people, all cultures, and all foods. You have been listening to Preserves, a Manitoba food history podcast produced by myself, Kent Davies, research written and narrated by Jackson Wayne Anderson. Hosted by Janice Deason and myself, Kimberly Moore creates the photos and images that accompany each podcast and is also our web designer. Sarah Story is our project coordinator. 
Our theme music is by Robert Kenning. Preserves is recorded at the University of Winnipeg Oral History Center. You can check out the OHC and all the work we do at oralhistorycenter.ca. For more Manitoba Food History Project content, information, and events, go to manitobafoodhistory.ca. We're also on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. If you have a Manitoba food story that you want to share, contact us by clicking on the contact link on our website. Preserves is made possible by a grant from the Social Sciences and Humanities Research Council of Canada. Thanks for listening.